Let's open God's word to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're starting a new chapter. And can you believe it? We've worked through the previous nine chapters in sometimes small steps or larger steps. And that's part of our view that the Bible is to be considered and expositions should cover the whole. We shouldn't just cherry pick our favorite verses. Although last week, verse 15 was one of my favorite verses. It's just the way it comes. And another today. Today we'll be looking at uh, verses 1 through 4 and particularly verse 4. And then I'm going to defer verses 5 and 6 to the next message because we'll have so much before us this morning. So as you're opening to 2 Corinthians 10, let me welcome those who might be watching live on stream uh, we, we know many of you and we miss you and can't wait to have you here. And perhaps you're new to Clifton Park Community Church. Do be in touch with us that we might serve you. Let me read God's word. We'll read one through six from the English Standard Version. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, But bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. May God bless the reading, hearing, believing, and obeying of his holy word. Amen. It just so happens our text mentions warfare. And if you were trying to escape warfare in the headlines of the day, it's in the Bible as well. As war has erupted in Europe, as Russia has uh, so terribly invaded Ukraine and waged war upon its neighbor, um, our headlines have been filled with things we haven't thought about In a generation. We've seen people in communities like us with shopping centers and stores and smartphones and modern cars. But the pictures look more like World War II ravaged cities. War takes a terrible toll, especially when it is carelessly or consideredly waged against civilians. May God stop that evil. And so we can't help but see and think, what would I do? What what would I stay? Would I take up arms? As families are separated and men in Ukraine are called to arms to defend their communities. There's a war. Come, fight it. Be engaged. This morning, as the scriptures call us to consider... There is a spiritual war underway, and there always has been. There's been the opposition to God at work in the world, and sometimes even in the local church, there is 
warfare, there is spiritual battle to be engaged. And Paul here, in part, gives a call to arms, but he gives a call to be careful in the selection of those arms. What weapons should Christians wield as we serve in the kingdom and armies of our God? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones has a a marvelous extended exposition on this very text. It's in one of my favorite books called Knowing the Times, uh, many essays of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He points out that there are a couple of dangers when you consider spiritual warfare. Either people think there's no conflict, no battle, nothing to fight for, we should just spread love, And some of those folks end up retreating into their pietistic little circles and just read their books and have their fellowship circles and ignore the battle, even as casualties fall not far from them. The other danger when engaging in spiritual warfare is that we would engage with the wrong weapons, that we would wage war like the world does. That's not what a Christian should do. And the Bible is filled with directions for God's children how to behave. And it looks a lot different than the way people in the world behave and resolve their conflicts. So let's uh, unpack this a little bit. Let's first look at the first couple of verses and look at the parties in conflict. The, 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 the battle that's presented here as Paul begins to speak. And... Uh, The first thing I need to point out is that these are spiritual enemies at Corinth and inside the church. Inside the church. You might be thinking, as as I once did when I first heard of this verse, okay, spiritual warfare, I'm going to go out and attack the world. I'm going to go do evangelism. I'm going to engage and enlist in the culture wars. That's not exactly what this verse is addressing. This isn't a verse on how to take over Albany or Washington, D.C., although the principles in conducting spiritual warfare do relate to those things. So don't plan to to see the culture wars victory plan laid out in these verses. Rather, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And this letter would be unrolled if it were a scroll and read in the assembly for worship in Corinth. And in the church in Corinth, there were wheat and tares, weeds and grain growing up side by side. It was a mixed congregation, and there were some there that were explicitly enemies of Paul and enemies of the gospel. Some have noted that the way this letter, the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, it is 13 chapters, the first nine chapters... Paul seems to be writing to those who had repented and were willing and eager to hear more from Paul. In other words, regular Christians who weren't perfect, but they were cooperative. And then it seems with this chapter 10 through 13, you will hear, can I say, a more belligerent tone from the apostle. Things are more serious because he begins dealing with uh, those that were unrepentant. It's a minority. He's dealing with some false teachers, some people that were in the flock who kept saying, no, 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 to the gospel and to the apostle and the teachings of Jesus that Paul had delivered. 
So there were spiritual enemies at Corinth. Kent Hughes calls them a small, unrepentant minority of detractors and interlopers. Isn't that a great word? It's accurate, interlopers. They've, they've, they've worked their way in. They're interlopers opposed to Paul in Corinth. And he further goes on to say that these, uh, uh, this minority seems to have been more influenced by the, the classical Greek worldview and culture. What does that mean, the classical Greek culture? Well, he says uh, uh, that culture and then these opponents in Corinth regularly regarded great men as anything but humble and rather thought of meekness and humility, which they saw in Paul, as servility in opposite to nobility and dignity. So they had that worldly measuring stick and worldview and they saw Paul as a, you don't measure up. Where's your rhetoric? Where's your stature? Where's your eloquence? Where's your charisma, Paul? You just don't got it. So we're not believing you. That's part of it. The Greek classical mindset by these people that had come into the church and sought to turn things around. Perhaps in a harsher description, uh, the wise scholar D.A. Carson said, the Corinthians were quick to seize every emphasis in Christianity that spoke or seemed to speak of spiritual power, of exaltation with Christ, of freedom and triumph and victorious Christian living, leadership of religious success. But, says D.A. Carson, they neglected or suppressed those accents and elements in Christianity that stressed meekness, servanthood, obedience, humility, and the need to follow Christ in his suffering if one is to follow him in his crown. I hope you're paying attention. You can't just say, I'm in Christ. I'm a child of the king. Look at me. I want power. I want it all right now. I want my best life now. That's a misuse of the scripture. There is a need to follow Christ in his suffering if one is to follow him in his crown. Carson continues, they, those Corinthians, glimpsed what Christ had done, yet failed to contemplate what remains to be done. They understood that D-Day had arrived, but mistook it for V-Day. They loved Christian triumphalism, but they did not know how to live under the sign of the cross. Carson wrote that about 20 years ago. The gospel, 2,000 years ago. That letter, that description are needed today. As we see our culture changing and Christianity no longer favored, indeed held in great disdain, we need to understand that that's one way that God will work through our suffering, through our marginalization. It's not a the loss that some people think it is. There were spiritual enemies of Paul at Corinth, and they slandered Paul. They slandered Paul. What does Paul say at the very beginning? You have to see some irony here in his comments because he's beginning to wrestle with these guys head on. So I'll try to read it as I think he intended it. I, Paul, myself entreat you. I appeal to you. I beg you. He's not commanding as an apostle. And he says, he further qualifies 
his entreating. He's describing his manner. I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He, he owns that style. And then in this a positive, in the ESV has a dash here to set this apart. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold when I'm away. What is he doing? What is he saying that for? Because they had charged him with cowardice. They said, Paul, you're timid. When you're here, you don't talk that bold and that strong. You're always humble and and meek when you're among us. But when you go away, you write these really tough letters, man. Your letters, ouch! You're a coward. Say those things to our face. That seems to be what they were doing. And so he says, hey, I'm going to continue to speak to you in meekness and gentleness because of Christ and like Christ. In verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with, with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. He says, I really hope you'll respond to my meek words. So that I don't have to pounce on you with my apostolic authority from Jesus Christ when I come. But he was slandered. They misinterpreted his meekness, his gentleness. Aren't Christians often misunderstood? Perhaps you're misunderstood? And there are many Christians who, who, who don't get alarmed and run around like their hair's on fire when the culture has this major pronouncement for, for evil or sin as being tolerated. We don't always have to react that way. There is a meekness in Christ that Paul is modeling, and we should take note as we pass this verse. The meek shall inherit the earth. How's that for V-Day? How's that for victory? Meekness is an essential aspect of Christian character, says one author. Its practice means we will not quickly take offense. Some small injustice, some unkind word or action will not immediately upset us, making us cause a fuss. At the same time, we will avoid at all costs needlessly upsetting others by thoughtlessness and insensitivity. That was Matthew Henry. There are going to be contentions inside and outside of the church. The Christian is called to a level of meekness. And I know some are saying, that's not going to work. This is America. This is the modern age. You don't know what the spin doctors will do with that. Let them spin. Let them spin. And you know, I can tell you that it will work. Because it worked for Jesus Christ. He was gentle among us in that first visit. Oh, he, he, he got angry in a righteous way a couple of times, particularly with some religious hypocrites. But by and large, he was meek, like a lamb before its shears was silent. He opened not his mouth. There's a meekness, my friends, that allows the word of God and the work of God to go through you. It's different than the way the world battles. 
The meek are those who quietly submit themselves to God, to his word, and to his rod, who follow his directions and comply with his designs and are gentle towards all men. By and large, that doesn't mean there can't be righteous anger. But the fruit of meekness, the fruit of the Spirit ought to be here, as it was with our Lord. Even Isaiah 42 prophesied about the servant of the Lord, meaning Jesus. And he is our model in serving the Lord. Isaiah 42 said, He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will begin his work with humility and gentleness. But he can bring the whip and the rod when needed. Peter, you know how Peter stood out among the disciples? Bold Peter, rough Peter, the nickname given to him in history is the big fisherman. He didn't have any uh, pasty, delicate hands. He was a tough guy. He would be used of God to write in 1 Peter chapter 3 these words, In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness. And respect. First Peter three fifteen. Peter had learned. Peter, the fisherman, had been shaped into a fisher of men. We also need to see that these opponents weren't simply upset with Paul. There were gospel issues at, at work here. This wasn't what color should we paint the church door. Or uh, which of the two popular hymnals should we buy for the church? No, these were gospel-driven conflicts. And oh, so important because of that. Let's just turn back to chapter 4 briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you need to see this. Uh, The language he uses at the beginning of that chapter about the light of the gospel. Um. Let me just start reading in chapter 4, the first few verses. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, there's Paul's meekness again. We do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing... He's writing this to the church in Corinth. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There are those who opposed Paul and did not believe his gospel. And that's not simply describing the world and all the blatant sinners and non-believers all around us. He was writing, and some in the church continued to resist the gospel, the truth of it, the the amazing grace of it, the fact that the gospel doesn't need to be attended by all sorts of religious hoops that you jump through, like some Jewish people said in the battle of the book of Galatians. You have to be circumcised. You have to do the kosher foods. You have to do the law of Moses and Christ to be saved. There are many ways to oppose the gospel. Those in Corinth opposed it. Paul says it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
Paul is fighting a gospel battle as well as having to defend himself because he's the link to bringing them the gospel. So let's, let's move on. Next, Paul brings up in chapter 10 uh, this statement in verse 3. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, meaning I'm a human being, I'm walking around in the world just as you are. Flesh meaning human life, existence, tangible. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. According to the flesh. Um, That means human weapons. That means human, natural to men type of means and techniques and tools. You know, in the world, it's very common for people to say the ends justify the means. We're going to do this because that goal is really good. Well, my friends, in the Bible, the ends don't justify the means. The means themselves must still be upright. So there are some weapons and some techniques that are just wrong for the Christian to make primary. And there's a long list. You can read lots of sermons and it'll list all sorts of wrong things. I've preached on this text many times over the years and I've tried to put my finger on specific wrong things. But I think with time, I've come to see two broad categories of wrong weapons. Well, three. Let me tell you what I think they are and what Paul is pointing at here. Because he's writing to a church in Corinth and we know a good bit about the church in Corinth because of the first and second letters. I think the first wrong weapon is wrong personalities. Wrong personalities. In other words, we often uh, elevate men to be celebrities, to be authorities among us, uh, to be, uh, boy, I almost said trump card, but I don't want to go there. Uh, We elevate people, and because so-and-so says something, that settles it for me. That's the way the world does it. God didn't send us his word that we would dismiss it for the opinions of men or one person. It's wrong to fight leveraging personalities against one another. Do we know what Paul said in this first letter back in chapter 1? These words sound pretty uh, familiar uh, back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. He's he's talking about the divisions. They had elevated personalities. Oh, no, no, no. This parable means this because so-and-so said so. It's hard for me to see a week go by in the Christian subculture where I don't see someone try to win an argument by quoting a famous pastor from Florida, Texas, or California. Here's the name, and I can give you the link. They said it, so it's got to be right. 
And I have to walk carefully. I have my own heroes. I have my helpers and mentors. And God gives these men to the church. Thank God for them. But what we need to point to is their scripture argument. Not just drop their name. And if someone criticizes that name, hear it out. Don't vilify a brother. No Christian pastor, author, teacher, professor is beyond questioning or examination. But the personality battles in Corinth were real. Corinth was fractious. It was big on personalities, and that's part of the church scene in the United States, to be honest. And sometimes it's not just the famous preachers or theologians. Sometimes the church in America, hang on, sees, oh, so-and-so, that famous athlete, they're a Christian. So let them take over the pulpit one Sunday. Well, not every athlete that's converted to Christ knows what he's talking about when he's trying to preach or teach. But we gravitate towards those celebrities. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones again says, too much interest in the preacher and his personality is always one of the hallmarks of carnality, working according to the world. I think we need the motto of John the Baptist. I remember the first time I read it in the first Bible as a very young believer. In the margin, I drew a little up arrow and a little down arrow. My little notes for reading this. He must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist. Do you remember in the Gospels how he just kind of fades from the scenes? He sends his disciples to go follow Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. He must increase, I must decrease. In the church, when there is conflict, when there are discussions and a battle is waged over the gospel and, and pressing it into the hearts and minds of men, be careful that you don't wage war by leveraging personalities, the names of men. There's a better weapon to use. Then there's this category that Paul addresses very clearly on several occasions, worldly techniques or methods. We could, if we want an alliteration, worldly men, worldly methods. But that doesn't capture the whole flavor. Worldly techniques. You see, Paul's not talking about physical weapons. Rather, he's talking about uh, engaging. How do we settle these arguments and debates? The people in Corinth used uh, a lot of their classical Greek rhetoric and philosophy, and uh, they had their way of appealing, and and their powerful rhetoric uh, was one of those techniques. And Paul very intentionally distanced himself from that. Let me quote again from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and then we're going to take a peek at chapter 2, so you might as well turn. Let's take a look. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Chapter 1, verse 21. That's a pretty important assumption there or declaration. The world in its wisdom couldn't figure out salvation, couldn't figure out God. So what does God do? He reveals himself, but he does it in 
the folly of what we preach. Well, what did Paul preach? He preached about a crucified Messiah. And to the Romans and to the Greeks, that didn't sound like victory. They laughed. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to both Jews and Greek. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul's really putting a shot across the bow to Corinth saying, you guys got to let go of that whole wisdom pursuit, that obsession with Greek philosophy and rhetoric and oratory. It's the content and it must come from above. And Jesus Christ is at the heart of what we preach and talk about because Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. Look at how chapter two begins, just a few verses there. And when I came to you, brothers, in Corinth, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. God sometimes calls men with great oratorical gifts and eloquence into his service. I think that's more the exception than the rule. And the Apostle Paul understood what was at stake here. I don't want you believing because I persuaded you, but because the power of God is at work and you're convinced of the truth of what's being said. So we cannot use worldly techniques. The power of rhetoric or worldly wisdom. I've divided two wrong weapons into these weapons here into two categories techniques and then I separated out worldly wisdom as the third point here because not only are the methods of the world different sometimes the message of the world tampers with the gospel I want you to think about that it's not just the method and the rhetoric but what is being said Paul said he came not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's his technique. But the content he specifies as well, Christ and him crucified. You see a lot of church planters today and a lot of people trying to regenerate or or revive and rejuvenate a church. They'll come in and they'll repackage things. The pastor, you know, gets a tattoo and wears a turtleneck or whatever the fad is today. Just when I think I got the fad figured out, it changes. So I'm still here. But they also change and tamper with the content. I think the easiest example of this was back in the the 80s when Robert Schuller brought about the power of positive thinking and said in recorded interviews uh, with Michael Horton and his buddies, you cannot talk about sin that will turn people off. And our power was a pretty big hit for a while. 
And there was a blending of gospel in there. But he conscientiously, because of the way he thought people would listen, he says, you can't talk about certain things. In his wisdom, he changed the content of the gospel. And even ended up writing a book called The New Reformation, which was a horrible book. I digress. So it's not just techniques, but it's oftentimes the content as well. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, you can modify your message, your belief, your method. That man you are trying to win says, well, I don't see much difference between what you are saying and what I've already believed. You will no longer be able to help him. This is the error of Protestant liberalism over the centuries. Softening the gospel to make it a, a more appealing. But that softened gospel does not make anyone a believer. And those churches, by and large, have wandered. If we're relying on human ways and human wisdom, it's folly. It fails to save. When God has given us better weapons and better techniques. So let's look to that. Let's turn now to this final heading, the right weapons for spiritual warfare. Paul Barrett said, only the right weapons will subdue and capture the proud, fortified rebel who places himself over God. And if you want a a quick Old Testament picture of how God works, just think how Joshua fought the battle of Jericho. Don't start singing the song from Sunday school. But you know, they fought that battle in a very different way so that God got the glory, not their might. They had an army, they had weapons, they had fighters. Joshua was no slouch, as later battles would prove. But God said, "Let's, let's make our first entry into the promised land, the the big fortress of Jericho, this stronghold, let's watch it fall just by my amazing power alone. So the people marched around the city seven days, and on the seventh day, seven times, and they cried out, and God brought down the walls of Jericho. God put a signpost for his people and for the world. This is how I will work in my way and in my time. Well, what are the right weapons? According to Paul, uh, it seems clear that uh, the first and most important weapon is the Bible, the word of God. That's what Paul is wielding here. He's writing to them and he's expressing himself about the power of the gospel. And it's the power of the gospel, he says in Romans 1, uh, for the Jew and the Gentile. In Hebrews chapter 4, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Chapter 4, verse 12, it says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is like a sword. And then we do know that Paul wrote in Ephesians 6, Take up the sword, which is the word of God. And if you know the armor of God in in Ephesians 6, we're not going to spend a lot of time there today. You know that the sword is both offensive and defensive. There's the shield of faith that's primarily defensive, the helmet of salvation. But the sword goes both ways. It was the sword that the Lord gave to Joshua, the sword of the word. 
As Joshua was being commissioned in chapter 1, verse 8, God said to the new leader, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night and be careful to do according to all that's written in it. And then I will make your way prosperous and successful. Joshua 1.8. I like it on Sunday school Sunday when we give out Bibles to first graders. And the and kids, you remember this? And you're supposed to take it around to the elders and they write in your Bible. If I wrote in your Bible and signed Pastor Dave Bissett, I can almost bet you the verse I wrote is Joshua 1.8. You check it. See, get out your Sunday school Bible. It is what God gives us to fend off temptation, to fend off opponents, to, to make any advance for the gospel. It's the word of God itself. But it's not the word of God alone. He also gives us the spirit of God. That is the, the great weapon that, how do we say it? We don't wield, but the Lord uses in us and through us the spirit of God, power from God. That's what Paul's talking about here. For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. If you're not of the flesh, if you're not of this world, you're of another world. He's referring to spiritual power and specifically the Holy Spirit of God. When Christians were celebrating the resurrection, they had to say goodbye to Jesus. The resurrected Jesus, after 40 days, he left them. Ascended. And Acts chapter 1 begins with that. They're all gathered. But Jesus made them a promise. Acts 1.8. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall be my witnesses. So in order to do the work of serving Christ in his kingdom, you need that power. And he said, wait in Jerusalem until that time. And they did. And the day of Pentecost came. They received power. Paul, writing in 2 Corinthians, the letter we've been studying for several weeks, back in chapter 4, verse 7, said, We have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay, that's us, to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He knows we're vessels of clay. We can misspeak and we're not attractive or charismatic or persuasive and compelling to the world. We're the clay pot. But the message we have and the Holy Spirit who helps us brings power to bear on the lives of individuals. And you can be changed. You can be saved. You can have your eyes opened. And a relationship with God, your maker, through the gospel. It's not your work, it's not my work, it's the work of God, the power of God. Paul would write to one of the first churches he planted, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and say this. We know, brothers loved by the Lord, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's how Paul first planted that church. That's how he planted the church in Corinth. And now as he writes to this contentious group of opponents to the gospel, he doesn't pick up a worldly weapon. He doesn't just throw his weight around. He presents to them the word of God in the power of God. It's the power of God that's needed 
Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great student of history, and he remembered one particular time in the Church of England that there was a crisis, and modern notions and modern uh, techniques were threatening to take over the church, and the church was losing its grip, much like we've been talking about the dangers today. And he said, what turned it around? It wasn't some brothers who got together and planned a lecture series and were going to publish them in a book known as Bishop Butler's Analogy, These books, he says, were not what saved the situation centuries ago in England. What saved the situation? I can tell you it was the Holy Ghost coming upon George Whitfield at his ordination. It was John Wesley's heart being strangely warmed at Aldersgate Street on 24 May 1738. It was the outpouring of the Spirit of God. It was the power from on high. It was mighty through God. Here is the very power that had floored and humbled and convinced the Apostle Paul himself and the proud, self-righteous, pharisaical Saul of Tarsus. He had to be knocked down. He had to be humbled and he had to be floored. And it is only the power of God, the power of the risen Christ, that can do that through the Holy Spirit. The same, says Lloyd-Jones. The same happened to the great St. Augustine and the same to Luther and the same to Calvin and the same to Blaise Pascal. It is the same thing with all of them, with their giant intellects and learning and understanding. And it is as true today as it has ever been throughout the centuries. The power of God behind the word of God. And obviously there's one more weapon. And I hope we wield it every day. It is the the prayer of faith. Pray, believing Paul mentions this, I think, when he's talking about uh, boldness in verse 2. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence. He, he mentioned several times that he was planning to come back and he was praying to come back. He's been praying over this situation. And, and when he says uh, that I really hope I don't have to do this, he's saying what his prayer requests are. And you know what? We, we only trust to prayer and the work of a sovereign God. I hate to give a spoiler, but how does this letter end? Let me take you to the last chapter. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Paul's wrapping up. You can see there's only a few more things he's going to say, but he says this. We pray, excuse me, we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that You may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. Paul was wielding the weapon of prayer. It's important to say, let me pray about that. Or when we say, I'll pray for you, we better mean it, even for those who may oppose us. James, the stepbrother of Jesus, would write in his book, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Christian, do you forget the power you have? It's hard to watch uh, Ukrainians try to fight when they have so few weapons. What do you do? Christian, in the battles God puts in our path, we have the word of God, 
the indwelling Holy Spirit of God and the power he can provide. And we have prayer. I've seen prayer change lives. I've been a Christian four decades. I have seen prayer do great things. And we don't know the half of it. These are the weapons of our warfare. This is how we do gospel ministry and try to convince and bring others along as we make our forays into the world and into the culture. This is how the church comes together around these things. Let me give you these three words of exhortation. In closing, I'll try to be brief. Number one, be engaged. The salvation of others is at stake. As Paul writes here in chapter 13, he's praying for them. And I didn't read verse 5, but it sounds as though Paul's concerned for their salvation. He says in verse 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. He's writing that to these Corinthians. Could there be someone here, a regular attender at this church, that needs to hear that? If so, all of us ought to be engaged. Salvation's at stake. And as we work that out here, we turn to the world and we need to pursue those who have yet to believe. Another exhortation is be shaped by the gospel. We're talking about warfare, and you might think of yourself as a soldier, but take note, the soldiers of Christ are shaped by the gospel. Remember how Paul began that chapter. He said, I'm not going to change. I'm still coming with you in meekness and gentleness like Christ. When the truth of the gospel is at stake, sometimes I raise my voice. I need more meekness. You can pray for me. But the apostle, as he contends has great success with his meekness and his gentleness, letting the word of God and the power of God do its work. Soldiers of Christ, be shaped by the gospel. Make sure no one mistakes you for one of the soldiers, one of the mercenaries of the world, trying to do the Lord's work with the wrong weapons. They ought to see that you've been enlisted by the shepherd king, Jesus. And a final exhortation is to be confident. Be confident. He who began a good work in you will see it to completion. God's word will bear fruit as he's promised in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And this scripture says, the strongholds of God shall not prevail against it. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. To destroy strongholds. That entrenched opponent. Those who are so walled up against the gospel. God can bring down those walls. He can change that heart. He can change Saul of Tarsus to Paul the apostle. He can do that. Have every confidence he can do that. In his timing according to his plans. He is sovereign. We're the soldiers. He's the commander. But have confidence. Have confidence. God is worthy of your confidence. And the weapons he has given us will not malfunction, but will serve well. Let's pray.
Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the work of the kingdom that you've called us to, the work that's underway here and throughout the Capital District and even in, in secular northeastern United States. Father, may we not turn to the weapons of the world, but may we let your word and your spirit in power work through us, confident in these things. Father, we pray and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.